Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Equipped to Serve, a study in Paul's pastoral epistles. Here's Pastor Nick. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Please open in your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 3. Titus, chapter 3. So what we like to do here at Whitefields, we like to study through books of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And currently, we've been in a series called Equipped to Serve, which is our study through what are called the pastoral epistles. These are three letters written by the Apostle Paul to two young pastors in the early church. Those pastors were Timothy and Titus. So we studied through 1 Timothy, then we studied through 2 Timothy, and today we're finishing our study of Titus. And here's the good news for you. You might wonder, well, then what are we doing next week? What we're doing next week is we're doing Philemon, which is the next book there. One of the things about Philemon is that Philemon is sometimes grouped with the pastoral epistles, sometimes not. So we're going to look at Philemon, and then we're going to get into a series studying through what are called the servant songs in the book of Isaiah, which are fascinating prophecies given by Isaiah about the Messiah. And we're going to talk about how those point to Jesus. That's going to be a really exciting study that we're going to get into after we finish Philemon. So today, Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 5. So go ahead and open there. And as you do that, please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now just with expectant hearts, knowing that every time we open your word, Lord, you're faithful to speak to us, that you desire to reveal yourself and reveal your will to us. And so, Lord, we, we ask that in this time you would help us to understand what your word says, to apply it to our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would do a transforming work in us by your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on Christmas Day in 1887, Conrad Hilton was born in the New Mexico Territory, which was, which was an underdeveloped part of the United States at that time. It was kind of a poor and underdeveloped region of America at that time. His father was an immigrant from Europe, and his father owned and ran a general store, which Conrad helped out in as a child. That's where he worked and helped out in the family general store as a child. During World War I, Conrad joined the U.S. Army. And after he got out of the army, he used the money that he had acquired to purchase a hotel in Cisco, Texas, which he bought for $40,000. Now, his timing was impeccable because at that time, the Texas oil boom had just begun and people began flooding to Texas for work and his hotel was constantly packed. And he made money at this hotel so much so that he used the profits from that first hotel then to build a second hotel in Dallas, which he called the Dallas Hilton. He then went on in, in short time to build other hotels in Abilene, El Paso, and Waco. But then the Great Depression hit. Conrad lost almost everything. He lost several of his hotels. He basically had to start over, and yet he was able to rebuild the business. And in 1939, he built his first hotel outside of Texas. And just a few years after that, he went on to become the owner of the world's very first international hotel chain, Hilton Hotels. Now, Hilton Hotels is a true rags-to-riches story of success and American entrepreneurialism. And as the Hilton brand grew, the Hilton family's wealth grew along with it to the point where 
Conrad Hilton's grandchildren grew up having so much money that they never had to work a day in their lives. Now, while in the beginning, Conrad received that with great joy, it was with great joy that he was able to give his children and grandchildren the kind of life and the kind of lifestyle that he had never been able to have for himself when he was younger. And yet over time, it became apparent that maybe all that money wasn't shaping his family in a good way. His grandchildren lived a lavish lifestyle, but it wasn't because they had worked for it. They hadn't earned any of that for themselves. It was all just given to them. And as a result of having everything handed to them, the Hilton children and grandchildren became lazy and they lacked empathy for others and they never developed a good work ethic. They were the quintessential trust fund babies who knew how to spend money, but they never had any desire to work. It got so bad, in fact, that on Christmas Day in 2007, the head of the Hilton family made an announcement. His announcement was that he was giving away all of the Hilton family fortune, all $4.7 billion of it. He was giving it all away to charity, and some of the worst behaved and most entitled members of the family would not be receiving a single cent ever again. If they needed something, then they would have to go out and work for it just like their grandfather had done back in the day. Now, the Hiltons are just one example of a growing trend amongst rich people who have decided that they will not be sharing their wealth with their children or giving it to them as an inheritance. For example, Andrew Lloyd Webber has chosen not to share his billion-dollar fortune with any of his children, and here's why. He said, so that they will learn the importance of working a wealthy British author explained that she will not be giving her money to her children because, quote, it ruins people to give them everything for free. And it ruins people to not have to earn their own way. Now, here's why I find this interesting, fascinating. Because the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us to save us is the message that we have been saved by God's grace, that we have been recipients of God's grace, which means that it is not because of anything that we do. It's not something that we have earned or merited. It isn't because we've worked hard in order to get it. The message of the gospel, we're told in 1 Timothy, is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. And that's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And in Titus chapter 3, Paul the Apostle is going to tell us that what it means to be a Christian is that you have become an heir of eternal life. Now, like the Hiltons, remember, the thing about being an heir is that you don't work for what you have. Right? Heirs don't work for what they receive. It's given to them because they're part of a family. So here's the big question that I want you to think about and ponder as we get started in our text today. If getting everything for free shapes rich people's children in bad ways, then is the same true for us as Christians? Does God's grace have the same effect on us as Christians that it causes us to be lazy, entitled, and not motivated to do good works? Does the hope of eternal life cause us to 
disengage or to not care about helping or fixing the very real problems that exist here on earth or meeting the needs of those around us. Well, certainly some people have feared that that is the case. There's a saying that goes like this. If you are too heavenly minded, then you will be of no earthly good. Other people might say, well, listen, if you tell people this message of God's grace, right, that they don't have to earn God's favor, if they don't have to earn God's blessings, if you tell them that, then they won't be motivated to do any good things at all. But in our text today, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that, in fact, the opposite is actually true. That when you really understand the grace of God, when you really take hold of the hope of eternal life, the effect it has on you is that it actually causes you to devote yourself to good works here in this life. Now, why is that? Why is it that God's grace and the hope of heaven would have the exact opposite effect on us than what many people would assume? That rather than causing us to disengage and not pursue good works, it actually causes us to engage more with the issues of this world and to devote ourselves to good works. In our text today, here in Titus chapter 3, we're going to deal with those questions as we get into this final section of the book. So the title of today's message is, How the Hope of Heaven Leads Us to Act on Earth. So how the hope of heaven leads us to act on earth. And here's what we're going to see in Titus chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. We're actually going to start in verse 5, but our text today is Titus 3, 6 through 15. We're going to see this that as heirs of eternal life by the grace of God, we devote ourselves to good works for God's glory and the good of others. Every week, I give you the entire message summed up in one sentence, and then we take that sentence and break it down. We use it as our guide for studying through these verses. So let me give you that sentence one more time. I'd love it if you'd take note of it, that if you'd maybe take a photo of it, whatever you got to do to take this thought with you as you leave from here today. But here's what it is again. As heirs of eternal life by the grace of God, we devote ourselves to good works for God's glory and the good of others. Let's look at the first part of that. As heirs of eternal life by the grace of God. Now recently some friends of mine moved back to Colorado from Louisiana. See these friends of mine, they were people whom I used to spend a lot of time with when I first became a Christian, when I was younger. So they recently came back to town, moved back to town, and they were at our house. And there were some other friends of ours also at our house. And one of our newer friends, if you will, asked my older friends, they said, hey, so tell us what Nick was like back when you used to hang out with him. And uh, one of these friends, they said, well, okay, but listen, the thing you need to understand is that back then, Nick had just recently become a Christian. And let's just put it this way. He wasn't very far along yet in the sanctification process. <laughs> and they went on to tell some stories of like mischievous things that I used to do, right? And so as Paul is writing this letter to Titus, Titus was living on the island of Crete, where he had been tasked with a job. The job was to establish healthy churches for the Cretan Christians so they would have places to gather for worship and to grow in their faith in Jesus as they were taught the word of God soundly and rightly. But listen, the Cretan Christians, they were kind of a lot like 
my friend's description of how I used to be back then, right? They weren't very far along yet in their sanctification process. There were still a lot of things in their lives that were more Cretan than they were Christian. They still had habits which reflected the culture of Crete more than they did the way of Jesus. And in this first chapter of this letter, uh, Paul told us back in chapter one of Titus, he said, listen, this is what the culture of Crete is like. One of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And, and as these Cretan people became Christians, you see, one of the things that Titus needed to do was to help them understand how the gospel changes the way that we live. Well, the good news about Jesus and what he's done for us, it has practical implications for our attitudes and our actions. That's been a major theme of this letter all the way through. And here in the final part of this letter, Paul is going to drive that point home one more time in a major way. He says, starting in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, he, that's God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, how many of you have ever heard somebody say, well, you know, all religions basically teach the same thing? Right? We, we've all heard somebody say that. They, they, might, they might go on further and explain what they mean by that. They might say, well, you know, all religions basically teach that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that you should care for the poor, that you should be generous, that you should be kind, that you should forgive those who do wrong against you. Well, listen, in one sense, it is true that the moral teachings of different religions are often very similar to the moral teachings of Christianity and the Bible. But, listen, there are two things which set Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. And there are two major things. Those two things are what we believe about who Jesus is and how you are saved. And by the way, these two things also set Christianity apart. We could say they distinguish true Christianity from false versions of supposed Christianity. So this is kind of the litmus test that we always run things through. Who do they say that Jesus is? And who, how, what do they believe about how a person is saved? And so the Bible, for example, when it comes to who Jesus is, the Bible teaches that Jesus was not merely a prophet, not merely a good teacher who pointed the way to God, but he was in fact God himself come to us in order to save us by doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Then the second point, how is a person saved? Whereas every other religion in the world puts the onus on you and says you can save yourself if you try hard enough, if you do these certain things, perform these rituals, etc. If you do these things well enough, hard enough, long enough, then maybe you can earn your way to salvation and eternal life. But do you understand the message of Christianity is just the opposite of that. The Bible says, listen, you can never be good enough to earn salvation. You could never be good enough to save yourself. Even if you were the best person in the world, which you're probably not, but even if you were, you still wouldn't be good enough because you know what God's standard is? It's perfection. Now, sometimes people say, well, hey, listen, nobody's perfect. And we would say, of course, we, we agree on that. But they would say, but you know, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Well, what you should say to them is, well, where'd you get that idea from? Because it wasn't from the Bible. Because actually the Bible 
does teach that God demands and expects perfection. Let me give you some examples. In the law of Moses, in the Old Testament, God declared, you must be blameless before the Lord your God. Now, somebody might look at that and say, well, you know, that was the Old Testament. And, you know, that was kind of God's younger years when he was a lot more strict. But then he kind of loosened up, you know, and Jesus came along and he kind of softened up some of the requirements. And now we're cool. Well, that's certainly not true. Let me read to you the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Some people say, well, I just live by the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the idea that God doesn't expect or demand perfection, that's not what Jesus taught, and that's not what the Bible teaches either. For example, it says this in the book of James, chapter 2. It says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. In other words, the Bible teaches that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin, the repercussion for sin, even just sinning at one point, is death. And that death, it's not only that we will all die physically, but it's much more serious than that. It's that our souls will be eternally separated from God. And that even now as we live, we're not fully living. And we have no hope for anything beyond the grave. But the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is this. That as Paul says in chapter 3, verse 5 here in Titus, that God intervened in our situation. He acted on our behalf in order to save us from this terrible fate. And he did it, it says there in verse 5, not because of any works of righteousness that we performed. He did it purely as an act of mercy towards us. How many of you have ever received mercy? You know what mercy is? Mercy is when someone doesn't give you the punishment that you absolutely deserve. But not only did God not give us the judgment that we deserved, he actually went one enormous step further than that by giving us so many things that we could never deserve. Where Some of those are listed here in verse 5. He washed us by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God cleansed us from the stain of our sins and made us new people. Our record of past wrongs has been erased and we have been made new. And again, this is God's work, not ours. He did this for us. It was something we could have never done for ourselves. And that's why it says there in Romans 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This free gift, the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, it says in Titus 3, verse 6, God poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 7, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, the word justified, it doesn't mean that God merely overlooks or turns a blind eye to your sins, your past mistakes and your errors. But rather, what it means is that God has settled your debt on your behalf. In other words, your account balance has been paid in full, not by you, but by God on your behalf. And, and it is then, listen, if this is you, 
then in God's record keeping, in other words, when he pulls up your record, your account, it states that you are righteous because you've been justified. You've been made just as if you never sinned. So this is God's gift to you. It is unearned. It is undeserved. And the result of it is that now we are, as he says here, we are heirs of the hope of eternal life. Again, an inheritance is something that is given to you, not something that you earn. And the reason we're called heirs is because God, by his grace, has adopted us into his family. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, it says this, that to all who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. So when you put your faith in Jesus and what he did to save you, God adopts you into his family. You become a child of God, which means that as a child of God, you are now an heir to the hope of eternal life. But here's the question. How does the promise of eternal life affect the way that we live here on earth? Let me, let me ask that again because it's important. How does the promise of eternal life affect the way that we live here on earth? How does God's grace, which we freely receive, how does that affect the way that we live as citizens, as neighbors, as employees, and as friends here in this life? That brings us to the next part of our sentence, which is this. As heirs of eternal life by the grace of God, we devote ourselves to good works. Look at what Paul says now in Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 8. He says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. What Paul is telling Titus and us is that the result of really understanding the gospel is that it will cause you to devote yourself to good works. Again, remember that saying that I mentioned earlier? I've heard it before, that if you are too heavenly-minded, you will be of no earthly good. The idea behind that is that if your ultimate hope is in going to heaven when you die, then you won't be motivated to make this world a better place. You will tend to disengage, they say, from the issues of this world if your hope is that you will leave this world and go to heaven for eternity when you die. But what Paul is telling us is that that's actually not true. That fear is not true. In fact, what Paul would say here, if we could sum up what he's saying, is this, that being heavenly-minded actually motivates you to be of earthly good. And certainly, I would say that history bears witness to this fact that this is, in fact, the case. For example, Christian people throughout history who believed that they were heirs of eternal life, who believed that they were recipients of God's grace, and that, therefore, they didn't need to do good deeds in order to earn God's approval or to merit their way to heaven. Those same people, Christians throughout history, have done more to help and serve others than anyone else in all of history. And most of the people they have helped have been people who did not believe the same things that they believed. For example, it was Christians who founded the very first hospitals. It was Christians who went all over the world starting hospitals to care for the sick and hurting. It was Christians who founded orphanages to rescue children from abandonment and abuse. 
It has been Christians who promoted the study of science and established educational facilities around the world. It was Christians who fought against injustice and corruption, including the end of slavery and equal rights for all people. It is Christians per capita who have given more of their own money to help people they've never met to feed, clothe, and house the, and the hurting and the poor. And the question is, for a group of people who believe that they don't need to do any of these things in order to earn God's favor or to earn salvation, for a group of people who believe that this world is going to pass away and their hope is in eternal life and a new heavens and a new earth, why then have Christians been the ones who do all of these things in order to help others and improve people's lives here on earth? How is it that receiving grace and being heirs of eternal life doesn't turn us somehow into spiritual trust fund babies who are lazy and disengaged? What about that, what did that British author said? Do you remember what that British author said? That not having to earn things ruins people. Why is that somehow not true when it comes to receiving the grace of God? Well, I'll give you a, a few reasons. First of all, what makes it different is the matter of appreciation. Appreciation is what sets this apart. A good friend of mine, he found out when he was 18 years old that he was adopted. You see, here in the United States, we have laws which prevent that from being kept a secret from children. But where he lived, as he was growing up, his entire life, he grew up having no idea that he was adopted. And when he was 18 years old, he found out in a letter when his father died, his father left him a letter to read, and that letter told him that he was adopted. And he told me that at first he felt incredibly betrayed. He felt misled. He was upset and angry that his aunts and uncles, they all knew about this the entire time, and they kept it a secret from him. And this information rocked his world, and it set him in, sent him into a depression for some time. But he said at one point he began to think about it differently. He began to think about the fact that these people had actually done something incredible for him. By adopting him, they had brought him out of an institution and into a home. He received a family, and his family loved him so much and embraced him so much that it never even crossed his mind to think that maybe somehow he didn't belong. And as an adopted child, he received an inheritance. And this friend of mine, years later, you know what he did? When he had a family, he and his wife chose to adopt a child themselves. Not because they had to, but because they wanted to do for someone else what had been done for him. Listen, it was his appreciation for the kindness he had received that motivated him to want to show kindness to someone else. And that's what happens when you really understand the depth of God's love and his grace towards you. You see, in order for you to become a Christian, there's a prerequisite. The prerequisite is you have to admit, you have to come face to face with the realization of just how hopeless you actually are apart from Jesus. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul the Apostle, he said that apart from Jesus, we are, he said, without God and without hope in the world. In his most famous sermon, Jesus declared, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what, what, is that, what does that even mean? Like, why did he say that? What he's saying is this. Listen, the first step 
to being truly blessed. The first step to receiving God's grace is that you have to recognize and admit your spiritual poverty, that you have nothing to put on the table, you have nothing to offer to commend yourself before God, and that you desperately need his grace. The prerequisite for receiving grace is admitting your spiritual poverty and your need for grace. And having that understanding of where you came from and what God saved you from, you know what it does? It changes your heart. As Jesus said, the person who has been forgiven much loves much. Rather than feeling entitled, it causes you to be appreciative. And that appreciation motivates us to action. Furthermore, being heirs of eternal life, you know what it does? It puts this life in a whole new perspective. It puts this life in a whole new perspective. Because this way, when, when you have the hope of eternal life, you see, rather than viewing this life here on earth as being the end-all, be-all of your existence, you realize that your time here on earth is relatively short. It's a fleeting moment compared to the vastness of eternity. As James put it in his letter, your life here on earth is but a mist that appears for a moment and then is gone. Now, some people might look at that and say, well, that's incredibly depressing. <laughs> but it's not depressing if you have the hope of eternal life. Because the promise of eternal life means this, that the end of your life here on earth will not be the end of you. And you know what else it means? It means that all of the fulfillment, all of the joy that your heart desires it will be yours in full measure for all of eternity in the presence of God in ways that you will never be able to attain here on earth. And therefore, the purpose of your life here on earth is not to seek what you can get for yourself, but to do those things which you can only do in this life, which you will not be able to do in the life to come. The purpose of your life then becomes to make a difference in the ways that you won't be able to in heaven. And you know what that looks like practically? It looks like doing good works. But that, of course, begs the question, okay, but why do good works? Like, what is the purpose of doing good works? And that brings us to the final part of our sentence. As heirs of eternal life by the grace of God, we devote ourselves to good works for God's glory and for the good of others. Look at what he says at the end of verse 8. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So as Christians, listen, we don't do good works in order to earn God's grace. Rather, we do good works in response to God's grace, which we have freely received. So first of all, we do good works. Why? Because, as he says there at the end of verse 8, because they are excellent. They please God. And one of the ways that we express our love for God is by doing the things which please him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, doing what is pleasing to God is one of the ways that we express our love for God. Let's say you're married. Let's say you're married and you know that your spouse loves it if you do a particular thing. They love that thing, right? Maybe it's buying them flowers or doing the dishes or cooking a favorite meal or whatever it might be. Listen, you can do that thing in order to manipulate them. You can do that thing as a form of manipulation in which you do it so that you kind of butter them up to make them want to give you something that you want in return. 
Or you could do that same thing for, the, for a different purpose, as an expression of love for them because you know that it will bring them joy. Well, listen, with God, we don't do the things that please him in an attempt to butter him up or manipulate him into giving us what we want. Rather, we do good works out of an expression of love for God in order to bring him joy. But another reason why we do good works is because of how they impact others. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 8. He says that good works are profitable for people. One of the things that Jesus taught is that serving God often looks like serving people. Do you know that? Jesus taught us that. Serving God often looks like serving other people. And as the body of Christ in the world, we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a world that is hurting because of sin. We get to communicate God's love to people by bringing relief to those who are suffering, by bringing comfort to those who are hurting, and the message of true hope to those who are hopeless. And by doing these things, you know what we do? We bring glory to God. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul the Apostle put it like this. He said, listen, you were bought with a price, so therefore glorify God in your body. You know, we often hear that phrase, glorify God. It, it can become one of these kind of meaningless statements sometimes if we just repeat it over and over. that We don't even think about what does that mean? Like, what, is, what does it even mean to glorify God? Well, listen, the word glory has to do with light, right? That word glory, it refers to a bright light. So do you know what it means to glorify God? To glorify God means to shine a light on who he is in a way that helps other people to see it more clearly. That's what it means to glorify God, to shine a light on who he is in a way that helps other people see it more clearly. To glorify God with your life means to live in a way that helps other people see the beauty of who God is and the redemptive work that God has done for us in Jesus in the hope that they too will put their hope and trust in him. So let me ask you, are you living in a way that brings glory to God? Are you living in a way that pleases him and brings him joy? Are you living in a way that helps other people to see him and desire to know him and experience his love and grace for themselves? Listen, what Paul says here in Titus chapter 3 is that as a Christian leader, I need to insist that you do these things. So friends, this is me insisting right now that you devote yourselves to good works in response to what Jesus has done for you, both in order to please God and in order to, uh, that God might accomplish his work through you, through your actions in the lives of other people. I insist. And, at the, and the end result of you devoting yourself to good works, you know what it will be? It will be a deeper sense of joy and satisfaction here and now as you fulfill God's purpose for your life. Look what he says in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. If the goal and purpose of our lives, then, is to please God and be used by God to help people, then that means that there are some pursuits and some discussions which are not profitable. There are some controversies which are not worth engaging in or dividing over. Because you know why? They only distract you from God's calling on your life, or they lead to unnecessary divisions in the body of Christ. Speaking of which, Paul says in verse 10, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, 
have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Regarding those who cause division in the church, Titus was to take serious measures. You see, the fact is that God is very protective of his church. He refers to it as his bride, whom he loves. And he doesn't take it lightly when people tear it apart rather than building it up. So Titus is told that, listen, if someone is causing division, if they're acting in a divisive way, they should be warned, and then they should be warned one more time. But if they show that they're unwilling to listen to godly counsel, if they're unwilling to stop causing division, then it's better for everyone if that person is asked to leave because such a person, he says, is not devoting themselves, in other words, to good works in response to God's grace. And Paul concludes this letter, starting in verse 12, where he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Artemis and Tychicus, these were two of Paul's fellow workers, right? Paul had this team of workers. Titus was part of that team. And essentially what Paul's saying is he's saying, Titus, you've been doing a good job down there in Crete. Keep it up, but I'm going to send somebody there to relieve you. And when they arrive, then you can leave Crete and you can meet me um, in Nicopolis. Now, Zenus and Apollos, apparently these were the people who were sent by Paul to carry this letter, the letter of Titus, to Titus there in Crete. And Paul urged Titus that, to have the Christians in Crete take care of these men on their way, make sure that they were taken care of. And this would be an opportunity for them to practice devoting themselves to good works for the sake of others. And by doing so, they would be fruitful. Because listen, a fruitful life is a life lived in service to God, and serving God often looks like serving other people. He says in verse 15, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Do you know what grace is? Here's my definition. Grace is God's strength to provide for your need, whatever that need might be. It's God's strength to provide for your need. If you need endurance, if you need strength to overcome temptation or face a difficult situation, God's grace is his strength that he gives to you to provide for your need. And his grace is a gift that he gives to you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. He gives it to you freely by his grace according to your need. And the greatest gift that God has given us by his grace is the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. The gift of salvation means that you can be forgiven of your sins, set free from your shame. It means that God gives you a new identity and a new destiny. And the way that you receive that gift is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And do you know what that means? You know what it means to put your faith and trust in Jesus? You can put it this way. It means that rather than trusting in your own good works to save you, you put your trust in what Jesus did to save you. And when you do that, you become a child of God. And as a child of God, you become an heir of eternal life. And listen, that can be you today if you put your trust in Jesus. And as you do, I want to encourage you to allow the grace of God and the promise of eternal life to transform the way that you live here and now. Because as heirs of eternal life by the grace of God, we devote ourselves to good works for God's glory 
and the good of others. Would you please bow your heads with me? You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com. 